everybody. Uh, Martin Kiernan here with another Infection Control Matters and sort of came out of ECMID and I'm delighted to say my guest today is Dr. Gonzalo Beerman who works at VCU Health and Gonzalo's been a contributor before on the podcast but he gave a very nice talk at ECMID on contact precautions and I thought we'd have a bit of a chat about that but before that Gonzalo firstly thanks very much for joining me but secondly what did you think of ECMID? Yeah, so good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are. Thank you so much for inviting me again. I enjoyed ECMID greatly. I think I attended it in 2006 or 2007 uh, before, but it's, it's clearly grown in size. Uh, I think it was a potent reminder to us the importance of in-person attendance to these conferences. And it's not just because of the scientific program, but also because of all the kind of uh, the the unofficial curriculum that goes along with it, the chatting with individuals, catching up with colleagues, even having a drink or a dinner with colleagues and brainstorming new ideas and getting to know people better. That's actually the most important part. So really yeah. great. High quality science, of course, and uh, really great speakers. Yeah, it's, it was very good, isn't it? And certainly the amount of infection prevention has grown markedly on the program over the years. So that's been a good thing for me, really. I know for an ID physician like yourself, you're interested in other aspects as well but you know there's generally something on the program of interest to an infection prevention specialist so it's been very nice in that way as well yeah it was great actually there was such high quality infection prevention content that at times i felt a bit uh, a bit uh, frustrated i wasn't going over to see the general infectious disease things which i could benefit from also being a practicing physician also well, the good thing about a hybrid conference like that is that all of the presentations are available online, so you can catch them up in the comfort of your own home later, I suppose. So that's quite nice. And that's hopefully, those, yeah, hopefully those registered will, uh, if they didn't get up early in the morning, because you did a meet the experts session. Uh, no, I never realised that your experts can't sleep, because every meet the experts session I've ever been to has always been almost as dawn breaks so i i really don't ever want to be classed as an expert because i'd quite like a lion but anyway you were talking about contact precautions and that's of interest to me because a good friend of mine did a podcast a little while ago jenny wilson and you very kindly alluded to her and jackie prieto's paper in your talk right. so it was it's around um removing of contact precautions for endemic infections and the effect of this but when I look back at your history, actually, you've been interested in removing contact precautions for quite some time. I think you were, one of your first papers was in 2007 when you went to universal gloving instead of contact precautions. What what got you thinking we need to do something about this? Because it's still a HICPAC guideline, isn't it, That uh, of contact oh, precautions? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I have to be very honest here and say that this wasn't originally my idea. I was picking up an idea that was launched largely, full credit to Dr. Michael Edmund, back at that time was the hospital epidemiologist here at VCU, then went to the University of Iowa and is now at West Virginia University. So it really was his idea, also supported by Richard Wenzel, who's still here kind of at large at VCU Health. Um, and it was all kind of a journey. It was a progression. The idea is if we don't isolate people, maybe we can just wash our hands and wear gloves for everyone. So we did a couple of those studies. And then we kind of built up our courage uh, built up our mojo to make a change, so to speak. Uh, also recognizing, and you very, very um, importantly pointed this out, that you really have to have a preponderance of single occupancy rooms. You know, those are like single low-grade up, uh, isolation chambers for people in such a way such that there's less cross-transmission. So we built, we VCU built a new critical care hospital, I think it launched in 2008, maybe 2009. 
And that was essentially all single occupancy rooms, which brought our proportion of single occupancy rooms up significantly in this institution, which allowed us to make a strategy change. In addition to really broadly and aggressively approaching or promoting a horizontal infection prevention program, which really focuses on hygiene, uh, doing the appropriate patient bathing, checklists, timeouts, removing lines, et cetera, et cetera. All that got us towards making that strategy change in 2013 and looking at it as a before-after uh, impact. And that was the first publication. Later on, we had more data, a handful of years, uh, which we used an interrupted time series analysis. And late, later on, we worked with UMass, University of Massachusetts, I'm sorry, and also UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, to pool our 15 years of data together and do an interrupted time series and then look at our results of discontinuation discontinuing contact precautions for MRSA MR, and DRE endemic pathogens. Mm. The take-home message is, no, we didn't see any adverse consequences, questioning the need for them, at least in those situations. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly non-inferior, wasn't it? And uh, what people struggle with sometimes over this side of the pond is because we see a paper saying, oh, great, we can get rid of contact precautions, is when you look at it, the list, it's number one, single room. <laughs> So, but you're working in hospitals that have single rooms, and I'm working in hospitals with bays of four, six, eight people. And, you know, a basic tenet of contact precautions, if you like, is that you do get environmental contamination. So that makes it a little bit more tricky, doesn't it? And so it's often quite difficult to apply a paper from one part of the world to another part of the world, even though you might really think that's a nice thing to be able to do. You know, I. Do you think that's sometimes an issue? You you can easily jump to the wrong conclusion if you don't really get a feel for exactly how somebody did something. Absolutely. And I also think that one of the conclusions that we came to are really a, a result of kind of a North American bias or perspective. And you say, oh, look, we've done this in North America. Why can't you do it too? Without pausing to really question, well, what's the robustness of the horizontal program? In that area, what's the availability, more important, single occupancy rooms? What are the resources available, uh, financial and otherwise, in those in other regions? So frequently what we do, particularly in single centers, as you know, is not necessarily applicable or not necessarily generalizable to other health systems, particularly other health systems in other geographic regions or other countries. Yeah, I mean... Another aspect of it also that we're finding interesting is we we feel that staff really overuse gloves and have done since we were taking a lot of care with blood and body fluids some time ago, back in the days mm-hmm. when HIV was new, and everybody switched to gloves. Whereas when I trained as a nurse, originally gloves were the absolute the exception rather than the rule. And we a number of us actually are very nervous that staff fail to decontaminate their hands properly uh, when they take the gloves off, but also they're performing multiple tasks when the gloves are on. So if you go into a room with somebody, the guidance is put on your PPE before you go in. And then the right. temptation is for the staff not to change their gloves when they're performing different aspects of care on a patient. And uh, I actually spoke to Lorraine Herbert about some of her work on this, and people do things out of what we would think is the right order without decontaminating hands and that's also a potential risk, isn't it? Because people think of contact precautions as, I wear gloves for virtually everything I do with this person, but actually there are things that I need to do while I'm working with this person to be able to protect them. So we, we've got to get good at getting the right message over here, I think. And maybe gloves for everything 
wasn't always such a good idea. There may be gloves for certain procedures you might do with the patient, but maybe not others. What do you feel about universal gloving, or should we just stick to the actual procedure and the actual risk rather than the universal gloving for what we would think of as contact precautions? Well, our experience with universal gloving is that it is certainly popular, and by using a universal gloving protocol way back when, 2006 or so when we did that, we showed no adverse events with respect to increasing healthcare-associated infections. However, the counter-argument that I think John Christophe Moussey may have written this, someone wrote a paper after our paper saying that universal gloving may be the enemy to hand hygiene, which yeah. may not be far from the truth, you know, that people are overconfident because they're wearing gloves or because they're wearing personal protective equipment, that they are not at risk of you know, contaminating cells or contaminating hands and then fail to do the proper uh, the proper hand hygiene. In fact, I think we wrote, we being Dr. Michelle Dahl, and I wrote a paper in, I think it was JAMA Internal Medicine or JAMA Open a couple of years back, talking about the increasing visibility of healthcare worker auto-contamination because we basically don't put on, put, uh, t- put on and take off, more importantly, our, our personal protective equipment, our guns and gloves well, and we self-contaminate ourselves and are completely unaware of it. So the messaging has to be spot on. If we're advocating a universal gloving approach or using uh, using personal protective equipment as uh, selectively and correctly as possible, the messaging on hand hygiene, appropriate doffing in particular, is critically important. It's got to be, it's one of those messages, not one and done. It's got to be over and over and over and yeah. over. And I actually think the pandemic has exposed this a little because people were used to wearing PPE to protect themselves and probably were not changing them as much as they should have done. And certainly cool. here in the UK, there's data showing um, coagulant staph blood cultures, you know, um, positive blood cultures and contaminants actually increased and possibly device-related infections increased, possibly because people weren't changing their gloves and doing appropriate hand hygiene when dealing with intravenous devices. And um, possibly also from a lack of familiarity with some of the PPE that people were experience- using at that time as well. Yes, absolutely. And we saw an increase in HIVs here in the United States also, likely due to many of those factors. Mm. So, so- I'm going to talk to you about now about selling the message then, because you're going to say contact precautions are important. And then in your organization, you're now going to say, actually, we think we can get rid of these. So, and I think you mentioned this was for, for you know, when there's a period of endemicity. So how do you sell that message to the staff in a way that it doesn't come across as we can't do anything about it, so we're giving up? Oh, I see. So, yes, I I think what we did over the years, well, I know we did over the years, was the messaging was always about, listen, we have a strategy for controlling healthcare associated infections. And if we do these components properly and hygiene, the appropriate use of PPE when warranted, checklist timeouts, bathing, et cetera, et cetera, then we will decrease the transmission. All pathogens, which are transmitted in the same way, which is contact. You couple that with a couple of things. You couple that with the year in and year out decreasing rates of all infections that so people are also the administration, the staff are aware that things are going in the right direction. And you couple that with perspectives, editorials, and even publications related to what we're doing. You feed that back to the leaders of the institution and staff or at least the managers of units. So they see that what we're doing, it has real time, real world implications and academic implications and being accepted for publication. That gives them a sense of, of, of um, of of, the, of 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 acceptance and also of understanding that this is actually something legitimate and scientific. And, and last but not least, 
think this is an important thing, and we've always said this is like we will always continue to keep a close eye on all the outcomes and make strategy changes as needed in real time to address whatever evolves or pops up. I think the important thing, Martin, is that you know, a lot of the things that we do, it's not really a destination. The whole thing is just a journey, right? You make yeah, changes yeah. and you follow and then you readjust and you adjust again, and then you readjust while admitting admitting that many of the things we do in medicine is not always based on the highest science or the highest quality of evidence. I think there was a paper a couple of years back that did a criticism of the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines and concluded that 75% of the clinical practice guidelines are based on expert opinion. Yeah. I would say yeah. it's much the same in infection prevention. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Actually, Brett Mitchell and Phil Russo, who also co-host this podcast, they did a paper looking at guidelines around the world and found like that 75, 80% of guidelines are based on expert opinion and what is felt to be the right thing, which is a real issue for us. So so what you're saying is by, by showing staff that it works, so you're feeding back good news, then they mm-hmm. become more confident that it's likely to work. So did you actually get evidence of people becoming more interested in infection prevention once they're starting to see success in reducing infection? Did, did you get a heightened awareness of infection prevention measures in your organization? So I would say that the interest in infection prevention did grow. Uh, the CHIPS with the champions in infection prevention, which are unit uh, nurses and nurse managers, that program expanded with more people involved in the greater infection prevention mission. So that's one way to look at it. Uh, number two is certainly recognition of the healthcare infection prevention program, not only by this institution, but also by the state at a, nat- at a state level on the quality of the outcomes certainly helps. And also, one thing that I would mention is in some of the studies we published, we've done surveys of the staff on the strategy change, and you get a sense how popular certain things are. For example, getting away with contact precautions for endemic MRSA and DRE, overnight, you reduce the burden of contact precautions by 45 to 50%. That mm. was hugely popular with nursing staff. You're not asking them to do more. You're actually asking them to continue to do the same project, but just peel off the gowns and gloves while still doing the hand hygiene, the timeouts, the checklists, et cetera, et cetera. And they really took well to that. Of course, the institution was happy because they were saving $700,000 a year. They didn't have a problem with that. So, okay. Uh, so a, you, you quantified the savings, yeah, money-wise. Yeah, that's yeah, good. The savings in PPE, that is correct. Okay, because I was just about to say, you're assuming, of course, that they were actually doing contact precautions correctly. Or have you just legitimized the fact that they weren't doing it correctly? But you showing savings showed that they were actually doing it probably quite a lot of the time then. Correct. And part of our hand hygiene program, our hand hygiene program, as you know, is kind of twofold. The direct observership program and there's the hand hygiene technologies and badges. The observership program allows us to take uh, assessments of contact options compliance. And on any, on any given report that you see, the compliance goes between 75 to 85 to 90 percent of appropriate donning and doffing, at least putting the gowns and gloves on before going into the room. Uh, so that's kind of the level of, level of rigor that we have. We don't have, have hundreds of thousands of observations per month for that, but you know, we do what we can with the staff that we do, and it gives us some measure of the appropriateness of the gown and gloves. It's not perfect as we all know, but no, something. No. Yeah. So uh, just thinking about then donning and doffing you, when you go in the room, do you actually keep supplies of gloves in the room so that the staff would be able to change them if they were changing procedure from something that was maybe a cleaning type procedure on the patient and then suddenly they realise, oh, I've got to do something with an invasive device, therefore I would need to change my gloves? 
would they be able to do that? Correct. So the, the way we have the, the gowns and gloves is there an entry of the room and up in the walls in the room, there are gowns and gloves for change, particularly gloves are always there for change. Okay. So we try to make it as yeah. accessible as possible. Yeah. Uh, and what what items of PPE have actually led to the um, reduction, you know, the savings? Have you quantified that? Is it gowns or gloves or what? Have you managed to It's really more the gowns, I think. The gowns are the most expensive. Mm. The most expensive component. And it, it, we do our best to quantify the savings. But as you know, sir, with much of healthcare financing, no one really knows the cost. It's like... <laughs> It's all bundled into whatever contracts and one pays here is different than what one pays elsewhere for a given product or procedure. A CT scan in this hospital might cost X amount of dollars. A mile away, it costs double of the X. Why? No one really knows. So, yeah, okay. Uh, but our understanding is certainly that the, the, gloves, sorry, the gowns are much more expensive. Than the gloves. Okay. And what do you think the prospects are then for reducing glove use? Because just wearing a pair of gloves for actually touching somebody's skin doesn't seem to make sense when your own skin is a fantastic barrier and you can very effectively decontaminate it with either soap and water or an alcohol hand rub and yet we do see staff wanting to use gloves for even the most basic of contacts where there is no risk of them coming into contact with the blood and with blood and body fluid how, so how can we get that probably, message over so it's probably true that gloves are overused uh, particularly there's very little transmission risk either to other patients or to the to the staff themselves it's also fascinating as you know the risk perception of individuals or what they consider to be risky to them what what is not I mean, we all know that there's an active tb case virtually no one walks in there without a pfr n95 mask so that's one of those things that everyone's scared of but certain um, certain staff have a higher risk of being germaphobes or high, higher penchant for being germaphobes and wear the gloves when not necessary so i think biologically speaking the message should be uh, bottom line if if you have intact skin and you're touching intact skin and not blood and body fluids, so to speak, then the gloves are not necessary. The most important thing at the end of before and after the encounter is to wash your hands. Uh, of course, we never want to tell people not to wear them if they feel it's important for them for their safety. It's one of those messaging things that's hard to say no to, uh, particularly in the United States, as you may know, are like the individual Trumps of many collective ideas or collective goods so <laughs> it's hard to tell people no don't do that there's no yeah. risk you're wasting well, i want to do it i'm like okay exactly. I, mean, I, mean, I also wondered actually saying people collectively say don't do that uh, did you get any pushback from professional organizations and um you know professional societies because um, yeah, here the royal college of nursing which is mm -hmm. a professional body but is also aspects of a, a union around it as well. They spend a lot of time actually promoting non-use of gloves because um, their feeling is, for, from a sustainability point of view, it's not great for the environment and we, that we do overuse gloves. Do you get that sort of feeling from your professional groups in the States or is it slightly we different? Ha now? We haven't yet, um, although I think this entire concept of sustainability is becoming more and more prominent and I think that the messaging associated with sustainability is likely going to increase for right reasons. We did get pushback by the Joint Commission when we made that change from contact precautions to no contact precautions for endemic pathogens, as you can imagine, because that's a CDC kind of guidance, HICPAC guidance, et cetera, et cetera. The way we were able to get around that or to convince them otherwise is to really do a threefold approach. One, they visited the units, of course, and saw the general infection prevention practice. Number two is to show the data 
years and years of data decreasing infection rates across all units, across all pathogens, including MRSA and VRE. And number three, when we were able to publish perspectives, opinions, and actually original science on this, we used that as exhibits A, B, C, and D to show mm. them why we're doing what we're doing. And that was pretty much accepted. So that was our approach. But I like your idea of sustainability because I think that's really important. And certainly when we started this discussion way back in early 2000s about universal gloving, no one was thinking of sustainability. Mm. And now I no. think it needs to be given greater thought. Well, I mean, you go to any major conference and there's sections on sustainability. There was actually a very good pro-con debate at Shea Spring, mm -hmm. wasn't there, about sustainability. And the person who was speaking out most for sustainability and saying we're wasting all this stuff was a, a consultant anesthesiologist who was saying, looking at all the wrapping the paper. And, you know, I mean, I, I've yeah. stood in operating theatres and operating rooms and the vast amount of waste that, and pack, in terms of just packaging alone without thinking about what the actual items are. It, it, that was quite nice to see somebody from that sort of field fly, flying a flag for sustainability. It was great. I, and, and, you know, my, one of my hats is the editor-in-chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship Healthcare Epidemiology. And we're looking for kind of better perspectives on sustainability and infection control. And going along that same vein, Cambridge University Press, the publisher of that journal, is actually moving towards a big sustainability push in which most print journals, I think, will become electronic and not print-based just because of the massive yeah. environmental impact of printing and shipping. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Journal of Infection Prevention that you kindly quoted Jenny's paper from, that's now gone completely electronic. There's no paper versions anymore. And, I'm, and I'm that's sure a great that's paper, by the way. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. That paper is great. I love that paper. I've got that yeah. here on my desktop, like icon that I can go yeah. to. And I really hope that, uh, you know, I would love to have a discussion with her on, on these days, one of these conferences coming up, I hope. Okay. That, I think that possibly could be arranged. We'll see what we can do about that because uh, the problem with Jenny is once you start her, it's difficult to keep her quiet on that subject because so, she's very, very passionate about it. But uh, like that would be really good. Well, thanks yeah. very much for joining me and having this, this nice discussion because you gave a very nice paper at ECMID about it and I thought it was worth a worth a, a, a nice podcast chat So, and any excuse to chat to you anyway was good. Far too kind and generous. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Well, everybody... Thanks very much for joining us again, and we'll catch you again on another edition of Infection Control Matters. Bye.